People get upset by words. If we're honest, there's lots of words out there floating around, and they can be very upsetting. We have what are called trigger words in our culture. These are words that anybody says at any time, any concept anybody says at any time, and it, strike, it brings up anger, it brings up frustration, brings up violence. And the list of what these words could be could go on and on, couldn't it? We have political words. We have intolerant words. We have offensive words. We have racist words. We have swear words. And like I said, it goes on and on. Many people get offended by many different words. Today, we're going to look at two words that are very much trigger words in our culture today. And no surprise here, Jesus uses these words, and it's very different than the way our culture uses these words. These two words um, have incorrect definitions in our culture and are used as buzzwords to talk badly about many Christians. Jesus is going to define these words his own way, in defiance of his culture and definitely in defiance of our culture. What are these two words? Well, one of the words appears in the text. The other one is assumed in the text. The two words are privilege and judgment. And if we want to get even more uh, offensive, we could put the word responsibility in there as well. These words, privilege, responsibility, judgment, these are words that have weight. These are words that Jesus is going to use in a certain way. So let's start with privilege. If you Google the word privilege, you get 4.5 billion, with a B, websites with multiple different definitions. As a matter of fact, the word privilege has been a dominant term, dominant part of the storyline, the narrative, if you will, of our culture as of late. Those who have privilege are guilty because they have privilege. There are all sorts of privileges, all sorts of words that modify the word privilege. It could be white privilege, heterosexual privilege, male privilege, even Christian privilege. The world says the more privilege you have, the more oppressive you are, and there is nothing you can do about it. Therefore, you are guilty because of your privilege. Now, it's no surprise here. We shouldn't be surprised at this point. We're 11 chapters into the book of Matthew. We've gone through the Sermon on the Mount. We should not be surprised at all that Jesus takes the world's view and flips it on its head. Jesus says, to whom much is given, much is required. Meaning that if you have privileges that others do not have, again, using the world's definition with a grain of salt, you are to use them for the kingdom. You are not to squander your privilege. You're not to put it on a shelf and admire it. You are to use it. See, in Jesus' eyes, it's not that one has privilege, that's the problem. It's what one does in response to the privilege. And the only privilege that Jesus wants to discuss is the privilege that God himself has chosen you, that God himself has revealed himself to you. The claim that Jesus has on our lives that we must submit to, this is the greatest privilege. This is the greatest honor. But it's not just something that we get added to our lives and we go about it normally. Instead, it's meant to change us from the inside out into a new relationship. So today's passage, yes, it's only five verses, 
And yes, it doesn't seem like there's a lot there. There is a ton here. But there's one key thing that we need to get, and here it is. The privilege of God's revelation, which is what he's been doing all morning with all of you, through the the reading of his word, through the songs that are just versions of his word put to music, and now through this teaching time, must bring about repentance and faith. It must bring about repentance and faith. Or it will bring about judgment. There's that second word that we're going to have to deal with in a few minutes. The privilege of God's revelation, the fact that he has said, I am going to let you hear right here and right now about what I have done is meant to spur us on to repentance and faith. It's not meant to be something that we tag on to our lives. And if it doesn't spur us on to repentance and faith, it's to remind us that there is a judgment day coming. And here he clearly lays that out. So really, there are three parts to these four verses. We see the unrepentance of Chorazan and Bethsaida. We see the indifference of Capernaum. And to both of these, we see the result. The unrepentance, the, uh, the, the, the indifference leads to judgment. So I want to encourage you all today. Yes, you've heard passages like this before. You've, you've maybe heard sermons like this before. But I want to encourage you with the words of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. Right there at the start, the the writer of Hebrews says, listen up, pay attention, because drifting away is a very likely possibility if we are not paying attention. So today, pay attention. Number two, verse two, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, judgment, a just judgment for what we've done, verse three, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Today, it's all about salvation. Is your salvation been neglected? Is your, is your, your faith been neglected? Have you left it up on the shelf as something that's, I checked that box, or is it something that is influencing your daily life? It was declared at first by the Lord and was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his word. He's saying there in that second half of verse 3 and then all of verse 4, he's saying, God made it clear. He showed us through his miracles that we are to repent and to turn to him in faith. That's what salvation is. Don't miss that today. Whether you've been in church for 60 years or 60 minutes, this is the day that the Lord has made. Your salvation is there. Choose to follow him. So where have we been? Well, Jesus has now spent a ton of time talking about himself as the Messiah. The last 19 verses, he's been answering John's questions and some questions that his disciples had. But if we're honest, Jesus hasn't been very judgy yet, has he? Really, John the Baptist has kind of been the guy. He's the one that's been calling people out. Jesus has been much more talking about himself. There's a switch that flips right here. And Jesus begins saying, I've now told you, you have to respond rightly. If you don't respond rightly, there are repercussions. And this is where we, we find Jesus. Now, it's interesting that Jesus does not judge the pagans 
He judges the Jews, God's chosen people who have had the Scriptures in their hands, who have had prophets, and now they have Jesus. They have a front row seat to Jesus, and Jesus says, why aren't you responding? Why have you not responded to me? Oh man, it's going to be worse for you if you don't. They have the privilege of seeing Jesus face to face. We can only long for that from the moment we close our eyes on this earth and open our eyes in heaven. Then we get to see Jesus face to face. They get to see him right in front of them with miracles. And they go, hmm, I got other things to do. So Jesus saves his harshest words for these individuals, the ones who've heard the truth and yet have something better to do. But the good news is, is that judgment is not the last word if we're in Christ. Judgment is not the end if we're in Christ. If we are his people, judgment is not the final word. The final word is salvation. And we see this in this chapter. In chapter 11, it starts off, verses 1 through 19, it's all about Jesus is the Messiah, which means the anointed one, which means the Christ. He is here. He is God in the flesh. Today's verses, it's about the judgment. He says he came to fix this judgment problem that we have. And then next week, he lays out even more great detail about him being the Savior. See, judgment is no help at all for us right now. Because all it does is it tells us how bad we are. And yes, we can, I can beat you over the head with that and you can be beaten down. But honestly, those of you that are probably in the judgment don't feel that. But those of you that are not feel it. The point here is, is that there is no judgment for us if we're in Christ. And today, we can be more in Christ by the time we leave this service than we were when we walked in the door. And we'll see how to do that here in a minute. Because we are meant to be new creatures. We're meant to be a new creation. We're those little teeny pictures of what the new creation is going to look like for all of eternity. So today, don't neglect what Hebrews encouraged us with. So for some of you, this will be the first time. You, you've never been saved. You don't know what salvation is. So today, it's repent and believe. For some of you that are Christians and, and you've, you've made a conscious choice to become a believer, but you haven't turned from your sins, today's the day where you get saved. Because salvation is not, I change my mind about God and think that Jesus is God, but then leave, and live my life however I choose. No, it's turning from the life that I used to live and going to him fully. And for those of us that are believers, we need to understand we never get past repentance. You know, Jesus is like the best of the best of those Discovery Channel renovation shows. He's not just going to come in, and you've seen some of these shows if you watch them. My wife and I watch them. Well, she watches them. I sort of watch them. But we, we watch these shows together, and they come in, and they remodel the kitchen, right? But they leave the rest of the house. And it's like, that kitchen's going to look really odd, because the rest of the house has not been remodeled. The rest of the house has not been renovated. Jesus will not settle for your house being just him on your heart, but your life being wretched. He wants all of it. So today, believers, if you are here, there are places in your lives where you have said, no, no, don't, don't look in that closet. No, no, don't look under the stairs over there. No, no, Jesus, you can have everything, but this is my spot. Jesus says, I am your Lord, 
And when you repent of your sins, it's not, oh, I lost my sins. It's, oh, I get more of Jesus. So don't miss that. We need more of him today. So, verse 20 starts us off with all three of these cities must repent. He starts it right off. He says, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. This word denounce, if you remember your old King James, it's the upbraid, which doesn't sound like fun, and I don't know what that means, but don't upbraid me, please. The New American says reprimand or criticize in another translation. This is Jesus saying, I'm calling them out. I'm putting them on blast. I'm putting them on notice. I'm saying, here is what's going on. He says, these cities where I did my mighty works... That word in the Greek is the word dynamis. It means power. It means explosive. Jesus is saying, I've blown the world up and shown you what it looks like. And you're going, are we about done? And Jesus says, you must repent. That word repent is the Greek word metanoia, which means to change your mind. But it's more than that. It means to have a transformed mind. Jesus always talks about new creations being made anew. And that's what he's saying. You need a new mind. See, we hear the word preached. We have the privilege of being a part of a church that preaches the word every single week. That's a privilege. But there's a responsibility as well. Because we have the presence of Christ here with us. We have his spirit at work in this room. Our responsibility is to respond is to respond. And if we sit here under the privilege of having God's word sung and taught and having his spirit present and we ignore it, how are we any different than these cities? So we get to verse 21. We see the unrepentance of Chorazin and Bethsaida. Verse 21, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth cloth, and ashes. That word woe, it's not quite the way we would use the word. Some translations say doom. The New Living says, what sorrow awaits you. This is an Old Testament word that is used pretty regularly by the prophets. Really what it means is how greatly you're going to suffer. It's a mingling of doom and pity together. Really what it does is it it weds dismay and disapproval together. It takes sorrow and censure and puts them together. This is not just simply damn you. No, it's woe to you. See, we see part of Jesus' heart here. Not only is it to shock them, but it's also for them to see Jesus doesn't want any of them to be destroyed. Because Jesus could have done the whole Sodom and Gomorrah thing right then and gone, bye Bethsaida, bye Chorazin. You're done. Wiped off the face of the earth. No, but he goes, whoa, listen. See what's happening. Repent. Jesus' heart is, I don't want any of you to die in your sins. I want you to repent because that is where it's at. That's where life is. So this Chorazin and Bethsaida, they are neighboring cities to the city of Capernaum. They're in the northern part of uh, the Sea of Galilee, at the top of the Sea of Galilee. They're compared to Tyre and Sidon. And then also we're going to be compared to Sodom. These are ancient cities that were judged by God. Each one of them had a reputation for wickedness, 
We see the judgment of Sodom in Genesis 18 and 19. We see the judgment of Tyre and Sidon, Ezekiel 27 and 28. All of these were destroyed because of their wickedness. Tyre and Sidon are on the Mediterranean coast. They're famous for how wealthy they are. They're examples of pagan pride. Because remember, every pagan city had a god over it. And if that city is doing well, then that god looked good. And so these were the best of the best cities. And people would have said, see, their god exists because look how great they are. So when they are wiped off the face of the earth, God's judgment is clear. It says, Tyre and Sidon would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. This is serious level repentance. The sackcloth, they would take um, the, the, the rough fabric made from the hairs of camels, and they would put it up against their skin. So they would be itching nonstop. There would be no way to rest to remind them that they needed to repent. Ashes were something that they would put all sorts of different places. On their head, like in 2 Samuel 13, Jonah sat in them, Jonah chapter 3, Esther lay on them in Esther 4, and Jeremiah, he rolled around in them. This is to show that they were serious about what they had done. They are serious about it. Now, like anything else, these kind of actions can be taken and become legalistic. And it's like, well, I did a sin, so I'm bad, so I have to do these things. And, and yes, many of the Jews did that in this time. But what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, no, they did it of their own accord. They would have just sprung up and they would have repented. Because Jesus says, my miracles have a purpose. And he makes it very clear. He says, my mighty works, and by inference, God's mighty works, when God works a miracle, it's meant to lead to repentance. Yes, it does take away pain and suffering. Yes, it makes our lives better. Yes, it is amazing and we are blessed but that's just ancillary. That's just secondary. So when God works a miracle in our lives, it's meant to lead us to repentance. Many times we pray for miracles in people's lives. And I've been, I've been convicted that I pray just for the miracle to alleviate suffering. But that's not the point. The point of all of the miracles that Jesus does is to lead them to repentance. And the repentance that every single one of us needs to just become a part of the family is to repent of unbelief to repent of that sin. And yes, if we're believers and we're healed, we're to repent of whatever else is getting in the way. That's the purpose of the miracles. So what is this repentance stuff? Well, I want to read to you the Westminster Shorter Catechism, written in 1648. Question 87 is, what is the repentance unto life? And the answer, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of the true sense of his sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God doth with great, with great grief and hatred of his sin turn unto God with the full purpose and endeavor of a new obedience. Basically what it means is it means to turn away from what you had been doing and fully turn towards Christ, turn towards God. See, we, we mix it up a little bit. We have a problem. And the problem is, is we separate repentance and faith. And we say, you can have faith, but you, you don't necessarily need to repent. And actually, this was a debate a few decades ago. Remember the carnal Christian debate or the, the, the lordship of Christ debate? And this was, well, there's certain people who know in their heads and hearts that Jesus is God, but they're just not repenting of their sins and they're still in it. But they're still in the, in the club, right? Or they've given their life mostly to God, but not fully. There's still this big area of repentance, and the problem with that is, 
is that that's not what the Bible teaches. You can't separate repentance from faith. They're just the same side, opposite sides of the same coin. As a matter of fact, when I was looking into this, I read that, that phrase over and over and over again. Like every single guy who was preaching on this said, faith and repentance are the same coin, just different sides. So I know that's been said to all of you. I know I've heard it, but at the same time, I, I just don't grab it. You know, I want my quarter and I want George Washington on both sides. I don't want my quarter with George Washington and an eagle. But yet that's ridiculous. You can't have a quarter without George good old George, and the eagle. See, when we come to know Christ, we are turning to him in belief. End, full stop, completely his. We cannot turn fully to Jesus and yet be fully focused on our sin as well. Repentance means to turn away from and turn towards God. I mean, for, for most Christians, their view of faith is like they got one eye on God and then everything else is over here on the things they don't want to repent of. And maybe for some of you, it's you're looking over here at God, but you got your hand back here on something you don't want to repent of. Turning to God, turning from sin. Turning from sin, turning to God. doesn't matter the order. It has to both happen. You have to let go of the sin in order to hold on to God. And honestly, it's God who holds on to us, let's be honest. But we try to bring our sin along with us. One of the reformers said, all of the Christian life is repentance. Because we never get past repentance, because there's always something that we're either uh, trying to go to, we're lured by, or something we're trying to hold on to. They can be big sins, they can be small sins, but all of them are things that are trying to pull us away from the Lord. But think about that. If I let go of my sin, I get more of God. See, that's the thing. We, t- we buy the lie that if I just have a little more of this, I can just taste this a little bit. But as your focus is over here on your sin instead of on your Lord, you're getting less of the great thing. You're getting less of the Lord. The Apostle Paul got this in Acts 26 when he's talking to um, the, the rulers in Jerusalem, or in Caesarea. He says that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. The, the deeds in keeping with repentance is the faith that we put into God. We must change our actions. We must release the sins. We must release the temptations and grab a hold of God. Repenting means turn. One scholar says, repent and believe both function as a schenectady, which I had to look up what that was. It's a figure of speech that represents the whole. So in the Bible, whenever they say faith, they mean repentance and faith. And whenever they say repentance, it means faith and repentance. They go together. They cannot exist without each other. So today, if you have faith and you've never repented, you don't have faith. You just have something that's a cheap imitation. And we want to get to the real thing because repentance and faith is what saves, not faith without repentance. Verse 22, but I tell you, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. That word bearable is the same word we see in verse 24 when it says more tolerable. They mean the same thing. What it means is that hell will be more miserable for those who knew the truth and didn't submit to it. These cities, they had seen Jesus firsthand. They'd seen him in front of him. They stubbornly, though, refused. And because these cities saw Jesus and didn't believe, they will suffer greater punishment than these super wicked cities. 
Similarly, nations, cities, with churches on every corner and Bibles in every home, have no excuse not to repent and believe because the judgment day is coming. So we have this privilege. We've all been given this opportunity to repent and believe. Now we got to get into that second word that our world doesn't like, and that's the word judgment. If there's any baseline thing that our world would all agree on, and I say our world, I'm talking about the Western world, United States, Canada, is don't judge. That's kind of a universal thing. Don't judge me. But honestly, we, we need to understand that that word, again, just like the word privilege, has been misused. It's used for all sorts of things. But when God uses it, he's talking about what it means to follow him, to, to follow him. If you're not following him, you're in the line of judgment. If you are in Christ, the judgment has been absorbed by Christ in our place. One author writes, the entire New Testament is overshadowed by the certainty of a coming day of universal judgment and by the problem arising, how may we get right with God in time? That's what it's about. It's what this is all about. But see, where the world goes, the world says, if you're judging me, it's all about hatred. The Bible says, no, me telling you about the judgment is grace. It's mercy because it's not here yet. Okay, that, that's what this is about. So I'll give you an example. What's more gracious? Telling a child, if you go down to the river, you could drown. Don't get in the water. You don't know how to swim. Or when you see the child in the water, pulling them out and saving them. Which is more gracious? They're the same. Yes, one involves more physical effort, but it's the same thing. And when we call out the fact that there is judgment coming, we are being loving. We're being what the world thinks is hate and intolerance. We are being the opposite of that because they are going to stand before the judge. And I don't want any of the people that are standing before the judge to say, no one told me because we are the ones that have it. Again, the privilege, the responsibility. We all, and especially pastors, are not more loving when we avoid warnings of judgment. In fact, we're being carelessly indulgent. We're indulging ourselves, making ourselves feel better while people are dying. It's a part of God's grace to warn. So why do we have this problem with, with judgment? Well, we have this problem with judgment because our world uses it in a way that doesn't make sense to the biblical way of doing it. As a matter of fact, God must be judgmental. He must stand for something. Would a God be an admirable God if he just lets everybody off? That means you can be Hitler and Stalin, or you could be a saint. You could be the Apostle Paul, and God's going to treat you the same. No, there must be judgment, and it must be meted out. If it's not meted out, then we have an imperfect God. And we might as well just go and eat and drink and be merry because there is no God. But our God exists. He is the picture of perfection. And in order to be perfect, he must judge injustice. And that judgment is either on us or it's on his son in our place. This is the judge of the world. Now, there's, there's some deep theological stuff here in this passage. The first one is, is that God not only is the judge of the world, but he can see what people would have done if he'd have done something different. That's amazing to me, that God can, can look and say, you know, if Tyre and Sidon, if Jesus had come to Tyre and Sidon, they wouldn't have been destroyed. What an amazing thing that God can see all the possible universes. 
Next thing we see is that there is punishment on the day of judgment, and it takes into account opportunity. For those who have had great opportunity, judgment is going to be that much harsher. Now, I don't know if that's a God decides it's going to be like that or if it's worse for them in the judgment because they know they had opportunities and they didn't do it. I don't know. It does, the Bible doesn't say which one it is. But either way, the warning is the same. Revelation 20, verses 12 and 13. John says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. They were judged, each one, according to what they had done or what they hadn't done. This is a very sobering warning for us. It's saying you are going to be judged for what you've done or you will be judged for what Jesus has done. Which is it going to be? There's even more um, here in this, and I'm going to kind of do these really quick because each of these probably deserves a sermon, and so if you're interested in any of these, you know, you can study them on your own. You can come see me. I can give you plenty of books on them, but there's six more things we see in this passage. First one is that God is a competent judge. God sees the end, the beginning, the middle, and every possible plan, and he's a competent judge. He knows it all. Second thing we see is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He has the power, the ability to do everything that needs to be done. He gives degrees of joy in heaven. The third thing we see is that there is a corporate responsibility as well as individual. Each of us is responsible for ourselves, but it is very clear that nations take on personalities and, and cultures slide. We are witnessing that right now. I always wanted to, to, I read about what happened to Rome when it was rotten from the inside, and now I'm experiencing it. Cultures take on personalities as well. Ours is a culture that is running headlong into hell. We need to pray for our country. We need to pray for our culture. We need to pray for our generation. Fourth thing we see is that it's the religious people that are the ones that are the most hard-hearted. The ones who will not repent are the Jews. It's not the pagans. The Jews outdo all of the pagans in their religious observances, and yet they're the ones that wouldn't repent. The fifth thing, don't shy away from talking about heaven and hell. They are unpopular today. Well, heaven's popular, but hell's very unpopular. Heaven and hell are reality. They are eternal realities. If someone's in danger of hell, we must say so. Even religious people can be in danger of hell. We must speak the truth. And we must ask God for his mercy on each and every one of us today. And sixth, and I think this one is really powerful, is that we need to understand how missions works. We need to understand how evangelism works. Jesus said, Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. These are the most unlikely places. He said, if I had been there, or if one of my followers had been there, they would have repented. We see this in the early church, when places like Alexandria... Ephesus and Rome become the homes of big churches. So guess what that means? Same thing can happen in Portland. Same thing can happen in Amsterdam. Same thing can happen in the most pagan cities on the planet. If it could happen in those cities. So keep your eyes up. There can be success in missions here in Portland.
So, the clarity that Jesus provides in this section. He says, there is one sin that is the worst. If we were to rank the top ten sins, if we were to make a list, I think our top three or four, maybe five, might all be the same. We'd probably have murder, adultery, rape, stealing, right? We'd have something like that up there. But then we'd get into our next five and we'd start debating, should parking, without a, you know, parking in a handicapped spot without a sticker, eating trans fats, leaving the toilet seat up, you know, we, we would kind of put all those things in there and we would debate them. There's no debate for Jesus. There is one sin that is the sin. It is unbelief. And it is a sin that we all must confess before we can enter into his adopted family. Unbelief is the sin. It's the unforgivable sin. It's the sin that nobody can get away with doing and walk into heaven. So Jesus puts it at the top. And it is, isn't, isn't it ironic? It's not ironic. It's demonic. That the sin that our world hates the most, well, they, they call it a sin, is saying Jesus is the only way. It's saying the only way to heaven is to go through Jesus Christ. And our world says that's intolerant, that's hateful, that's judgmental. Jesus is the only way. Our world has inverted it. So, judgment is coming. Jesus is clear about that. The New Testament is clear about that. The New Testament is clear that if you have the privilege of hearing these words today, you have a responsibility. The responsibility is to repent and turn to Christ. Capernaum had this opportunity. Not only did they have the miracles done, but they had Jesus in the flesh living in their city. He spent more time in Capernaum than anywhere else on his mission. So no wonder these words that we hear hit next. Verse 23. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Will you be brought down to Hades? For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. So you notice the word woe is not in here. There's no woe listed. It's assumed. There's an assumed woe. But there's an escalation here, isn't there? What, what you might not know is that Tyre and Sidon were destroyed. Ezekiel, they were destroyed. They were wiped out. And then a few decades later, someone else settled there. And they were called Tyre and Sidon. Probably not a good idea if, you're, if your city was wiped out by God to rename your city that name. You know? So no, no founding you know, Sodoms and Gomorrahs in America today. But Sodom was different than Tyre and Sidon. Sodom was wiped out. And to this day, there has never been another city on that spot. Some think it might have fallen into the Dead Sea. Others think it was wiped out by a volcano and the volcano stuff is still there and we can't settle there. Whatever it is, Sodom was a city that was wiped out and gone forever. So Capernaum, this, this, this privileged city, this city that Jesus lived in, is like Sodom in his mind. Sodom would have been better. They had a front row seat to what Jesus was doing. That's pretty sobering to think about as we're sitting in a church and seeing what Jesus is doing. The phrase, will you be exalted to heaven and will you be brought down to Hades? This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 14. This is where, where Jesus is comparing Capernaum to Babylon. Babylon was being chided here by Isaiah because Babylon was prideful. Babylon said, we're the best. We are the very best. Nobody can touch us. 
Babylon's famous for corrupting, and if they don't corrupt, they conquer. And that's Babylon's M.O. But Babylon's M.O. was, we don't need the God of those Hebrews. We have our own. So Capernaum, being a small power, small, small city with no power, like Babylon, had the same sin, which was, we don't need you, Jesus. Yeah, we've seen all these miracles, and they're great, and we understand that you're here, and you're the Son of God, but nah, we don't need it. Capernaum knew and didn't believe. Sodom didn't know and would have believed. What a crazy way to put that. He says Sodom would have remained until this day, meaning it wouldn't have never been wiped out. They would have repented and they would have believed and they would have still been around in Jesus' time. So why are these three cities listed? Well, they're not the only ones facing judgment. I think that's clear. I think they're meant to be a representative Because you have two cities that were nearby that got a lot of Jesus, but not all the time. And then you have this one city that gets Jesus all the time, every day. It's where he returned to. It's where he would be, buying his fruit, buying his food. And yet they didn't believe. Of the apostles, Philip, Andrew, and Peter were from Bethesda. Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Matthew, and Jesus all lived in Capernaum for a time. Matthew grew up in Capernaum. And so this was a place that was saturated with people who'd been changed, but yet the city didn't want anything to do with it. Verse 24, but I tell you, it'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. What a harsh, harsh comparison. This is meant to to awaken the Jews and go, wait a sec, no, Sodom is the worst. And Jesus is going, yeah, you're right there with them if you don't repent and turn to me. See, the Gentiles didn't know and sinned out of ignorance. These Jewish cities were sinning out of knowledge. They knew because they had the scripture, and they knew because they had Jesus right in front of them. So this is meant to make us think. How do we compare to these Gentiles? How do we compare to these cities? Jesus is saying, you, Capernaum, with your pride and your honor and your superiority, repent of your folly. Humble yourself before the Lord unless you face the judgment See, we as a Christian community, we are in a special place of trouble on Judgment Day. Not because Jesus does not have communities, but because he has this community, but he doesn't have you. Doesn't have all of us. See, it doesn't matter whether you attend a church. It doesn't matter whether you've prayed a prayer. If you haven't repented and turned to Jesus Christ, you are not his. This is a place you don't want to be in. Every member of every church has Jesus, but Jesus does not have every member of every church. So what does this mean for us? Well, I found a quote from a lady about privilege, and she said, half the world is starving, the other half's on a diet. We're not privileged because we need to be or deserve to be. It's a, privilege is a responsibility to be accepted. Every single one of you has now had the privilege of hearing God's word on salvation. You know that Christ has stood in your place, taking the punishment for your sins. You've heard this. You've had the privilege. You walked in here of your own free will. You are here. You've heard it. What is your response going to be? If this is new to you and you've never done this, it's time to repent of your unbelief. That sin that has kept you from your faith. Repent and believe. For those of you that are believers, it's time to move into saving faith. If you've never repented, you need to repent and be saved. 
It's not enough to attend a church. It's not enough to go to Bible studies. It's not enough if you haven't repented and believed. And then believers that have repented, you've repented of your unbelief, you get to repent more. Because remember, just like I said earlier, the more we repent and the more we let go of those sins, the more of God we get. Heaven is about being in the presence of God. That's what makes it great. You get to experience that more and more the more you repent. Don't buy the world's lie that you got to get your best life now. you got to try to grab on to everything. YOLO, you only live once. Hold on to it. No, let go of that and grab on to the life that will never go away. There are great privileges for us. We walked in here of our own accord. We have more Bibles available to us in our language than ever in the history of the world. Yes, our country has some issues right now. But we've been given so much freedom and so many opportunities. We can talk about Jesus on the street corner and no one's going to come rest us and shoot us. This greatest gift, though, we've been given is Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection in our place. We have the privilege of hearing this clear, unfiltered, without threat of our lives. But yet, to be honest, there are people in other places in the world where they could die for this, and they are doing a much better job than we are. We need to take that, and we need to recognize that with much privilege, there is much responsibility. So, if you've not given your life to him, you know the end is coming. It may even be today you will stand before God. We will all stand before God. The question is, is who stands in our place? Will it be Christ or will it be us? The good news, though, is that the judgment is not something we have to try to figure out how to avoid. Christ did it on our behalf. He took it on our behalf. 